0: Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and today we are returning to political economy. We did a whole mini-series on isekai anime, so I'm sure everyone that listens is extremely tired of anime now and wants to hear all about uh, Swedish prices from the 1300s. Uh, So to help me talk about this, today I brought on uh, two of the members from Grubstakers, Andy and Steven.
1: Hello. Hey everyone how you guys doing uh pretty good i mean i i think of coinage as the neon genesis of uh economics
0: <laughs> so i started this as just the topic of coinage in general but uh that's just too large a topic so today we're gonna be focusing specifically on like debasement which is uh when the sovereign reduces the content of precious metal in a coin so if If a coin is made of silver mixed with like copper or something like that, and you know it has 22 grams per coin, then the sovereign will sometimes reduce it to 20 grams so that they can produce more of them for the same amount of silver. Um, so most of the studies on this, unfortunately, are by like the same three sets of people. Um, I wrote their names down. Yeah, who cares? uh but they're all like neoclassical guys, so any gaps in evidence they they, they just fill in with neoclassical theory, um, which means it's completely insane. <laughs> uh, anything that they don't know, they're like, oh yeah, of course it's uh you know one one producer in the market who's producing one commodity and trades. Uh, Coins for silver bullion just uh, for uh, between themselves and the consumers. And anytime the market price of the coin goes above a certain price, then consumers will take their coins to the mint and get silver bars and trade those for commodities, just that kind of thing. So I wanted to answer three main questions. One is what happens to prices when a coin is debased? uh what happens to coins when a coin is debased and uh when a new money is issued is it a larger uh smaller or same fraction of like the average price um, so according to the economists uh we have Gresham's law for uh what happens to coins uh do you guys know about that it's supposed to be famous I don't know if it is outside. Uh of yeah, coin nerds.
2: I recall it is it has to do with hoarding?
0: Yes. Yeah. So the law is supposed to be that when a sovereign issues a new coin and it's debased, then the uh the bad money chases out the good money. So people will like hoard the old coins that have a higher silver or gold content. Um so that Yeah, like if
2: you have um if you if you're the holders of the old issuance of coins that you already know has a higher content, and you get word of a debasement going on, you'll hold on to you'll take yours out of circulation and only use the bad ones. Yeah, exactly. It's the idea of it.
0: Yes. So I read a couple studies on Gresham's Law. One of them I was reading right before I came down here. Um and it's again by one of these like three sets of authors that write all of the papers on debasement. Uh, so they wanted to test whether or not it was true. What, um,
1: did, uh, what did Black Francis have to say about this?
0: <laughs> I or I was going to use that song. <laughs> you, you were waiting. For, yeah, I was. I was going to ask if
1: you have uh, the the rights for uh,
0: Pixies music. Yeah the the famous song about lowering the precious metal content of coins <laughs> by by slashing at pie balls. Yeah, is it easier to slash up eyeballs with uh, coins with less or more silver in them? That's that's the real <laughs> question we we, we want to answer. <laughs> um, okay, so this is a study by uh, Vel- Rolnick, Velda, and Weber. Or is it Weld-, Weld and Weber? I don't know. German. And so they're trying to answer whether Gresham's Law is true or not. And they say, uh, in order for it to be true... People would have to uh, sell heavier coins while using lighter coins, which we basically said, Um, and that it requires a fixed exchange rate. So, like, what they mean by that is that the coins would exchange at face value, Um, which to me makes sense. Like, that seems like it would happen everywhere because it does now. But they say. That there's actually no evidence of this happening in history during, like, the era of metallic coins. Um, they have a bunch of different examples, like, when the U.S. issued greenbacks during the Civil War. Um, the greenbacks were the the bad money. Um, but they were still... Uh, y- people were still using the coin that it replaced, which I, I think was the Spanish dollar. And... I guess the reason for that is
1: so it's it's bas it's an economic law with zero uh empirical data or zero yeah <laughs> empirical instances that have ever that's ever backed it up in yes. the in known history of of currency it's a law
0: that is violated constantly um <laughs> in all sorts of instances throughout time yeah uh you nailed it yep <laughs> they they modify the law so that it actually fits, which is you know what what economists love to do. They're like, oh well, this law that is violated all the time isn't correct, but we can make it correct <laughs> so that you we are wrong. Maybe
2: maybe try not calling it a law. <laughs> <laughs> that's like st- step one. Yeah. Hmm. Um, Gresham's no. <laughs> <Grisham's>,
1: uh guess.
2: <laughs> Gresham's Grish- uh, conjecture.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's a better term.
1: Gresham's uh,
0: <laughs> thing that he's got a pretty good uh, inkling about. <laughs> okay, so th- they cite this letter from the head of the U.S. Mint to President Jefferson uh, to support this modification they make. Um, and they'll they'll talk about what the modification is right after it. So I'll just read this out. Um, because it's confusing to me, and I'm hoping that you guys can help me figure out what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> so they say, Small... Spanish silver coins are extremely plenty, and as their nominal and circulating value is considerably above their real intrinsic value, they will neither be sent to the mint, used in manufactures, nor carried out of the country, but indeed are daily increasing by importation. Small coins of the United States will therefore be less necessary for the sake of change, while foreign small silver continues to be a circulating medium. We lately struck at the Mint nearly a quarter of a million of silver dimes, except they spell it with an S, -S -S, D-I-S-M-E-S, Dismas. It is, however, with the utmost difficulty that we can prevail upon any of the banks to accept of them, to accept of them, and, in fact, nearly half the number still remains in our vaults. So half of the quarter million dimes remains in their vaults, I guess. Um, And the authors say that the letter suggests that at least small transactions were implicitly stated in Spanish prices, that is, small Spanish silver coins circulated at their nominal value. For U.S. silver coins to circulate, therefore, they would have had to exchange at a premium, and that was probably not worth the effort for most people. Uh, That the Mint had difficulty getting banks to use this money, therefore, is consistent with our version of Gresham's Law. I thought they would state what the law was, but... uh, I'll find that in a second. Can I say something? Yes.
2: Yes. there's something, uh, leaving Gresham's Law aside for a second, there's something to be said for a new, um, so there's a state theory of money, or chartalism, as it's sometimes called, mm-hmm. and there's also neo-chartalism, or MMT, as it's called today. And they both have uh, an essentially correct analysis of the state issuance of money being backed up by its tax receivability. And they also try to, they attempt to develop the further notion about what, what just receivability is. Mm -hmm. And like, is it only state power that ultimately makes people use the money that it spends into existence and gives it value? Or is it other things? And if you have Spanish dollars uh, circulating within your territory and you're trying to get people to use more of your own currency and you haven't really established yourself yet as a state like the first mint had, had not yet done really with with the US government mm-hmm. then yeah you'll see you'll see outside money being circulated or held speculatively uh within your territory okay as like a secondary source of money and there's there's certainly I mean, there's certainly empirical evidence for for people holding on to commodity money as a hedge against like uh state power being reduced somehow or if they attempt to like if you um in risk management terms as a private actor operating within the sovereign territory of a fiat issuer uh it would make sense to keep some spanish silver on hand in order to make your payments and make investments in addition to using like well not dimes but u.s dollars uh for the state that is like brand new and hasn't really asserted its control over the productive processes within its territory if that makes sense
0: it sort of makes sense but have you considered that actually uh it's because the utility of the new coin is lower and so a rational actor would not use it uh because it doesn't increase their utility very much
2: (laughs) yeah you know that's that's a great point (laughs) and by great point i mean a bad point (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the utility yeah to, to put it into put it, to put it into marginalist terms for, for the listeners <laughs> which meant to so it makes sense i guess yeah the the amount of utils that you get from using from using a spanish dollar
0: is it's still higher so you know okay now, of course, we, we come to an empirical problem with that, which is, do we measure the utils in uh, Spanish dollars or the new U.S. dimes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are these utils
2: denominated in? <laughs> We're just
1: taking John Stewart Mill out to the woodshed today.
2: <laughs> if you think about it, to get back to a more grounded explanation of what, what I think is going on, and like, if you look back in the history of economic thought on money people would look at, like, why are, um, okay, fiat money is a thing, and so is credit money issued by central, central banks and whatnot, um, but, however, there's early examples of the value of gold or silver, um, going up, seemingly, when the value of a sovereign-issued currency goes down within the territory of the place, and, like, in the 13th century, Uh, the kings versus the barons in england that's like a classic example of it happening where barons would hoard gold and silver because i mean they have legitimate political beef with the king and have ideas about undermining his authority and it's hard to do that if you're using the king's money so like if you were freaking
0: hoarder barons yeah.
2: <laughs> so, like, if you if you have an idea that you eventually might want to go to war as a contingency with the king, then you probably shouldn't only be using the king's money. That you should sense. also have some gold sense. so that to make to get resources that you'd need to to fight such a war.
0: Okay. Yeah. This th- that makes sense. Of like something that I was having trouble with, which is like, you know, they keep talking about how, uh, you know, if the value of the coin that like the par value of the coin drops below the melt value of the coin, then they will like remint it or melt it down into bullion. But like they're since they're neoclassicals, they're talking about it in terms of consumers, which in medieval times would be peasants (laughs) who I don't think have access to melting down (laughs) metal technology.
2: (laughs) It's like, it's so confused how neoclassicals talk about, Coins mm-hmm. and metalism generally, and they say like well there's consumer preferences going on about like which metal they like, or if they if they perceive its value has fallen below the nominal face value um, then you 'll see more alloying of the coin, mm-hmm. and they take what they take that to mean is like see gold is the ultimate expression of money, right and then you get into like this this like fetishization of gold and silver as the ideal monies rather than one alternative amongst many things that could be money and like actually look at why they might have value each of them
0: yeah i ended up talking to accidentally talking to uh one of those gold fetishist people that the creature from jekyll island reader types you know
2: oh nice
0: yeah who got really mad at me when i said that all capitalist economies use central banks it's not a conspiracy it's just like normal stuff
2: (laughs) the the jekyll island convention in 1912 or whatever
0: yes yeah which was uh of course run by the jews uh as we all know
2: right right big conspiracy
0: yes so i found the their version of gresham's law so the authors say that the gresham's law that works is bad money drives good money out of circulation only when the costs of using the good money at a premium are significant, which I guess in within the explanation that you just gave would be when the new state isn't expected to have control of the territory well enough.
2: Yeah, like, like that could be one reason, or like
0: I, I would say generally.
2: Um, so, like w- what I'm trying to do is like i'm just looking at um so coined metal money was an economic fact of life Mm -hmm. for hundreds over a hundred a couple thousand years and um i feel like i feel like the chart lists of today mmt they kind of pass over that history and don't really treat it that well Oftentimes, and they'll just say, "Well, that was when people thought that like gold—they just fetishized gold, and they were just obsessed with that because it was shiny or something." Yeah, and they—they uh, they don't really treat it very well in terms of trying to understand why the fuck people were using this in addition to fiat money for a while. And like one reason that can happen is because you've got all these different uh, states operating, and if you're Like, if you're a business person or a state itself trying to uh, get resources that you yourself cannot produce within your own territory, then you need to import stuff. In order to import stuff, you need foreign exchange. In order to get foreign exchange, you can use things like gold, which are widely accepted as currency throughout the world. And so, and like, why is it accepted? That's an interesting question. I think part of it is, honestly, it is shiny. Yeah. Yeah and human- and humans are like, oh, well, most people appreciate a shiny object. Here is one, and I can use that to get to buy um capital goods to build factories and stuff so that's nice yeah anything?
1: yeah there's the um the argument i don't know if it was from marx or just harvey's re- uh, david harvey's reading of Marx that basically the the reason at least according to um that line of analysis that gold is uh, such a good exchange commodity is simply because it doesn't oxidize, and so um, it, it yeah. you, you don't you don't lose uh, metal over the over the period of time like you do with other metals
2: yeah so like that there's something to be said for its use as a, a means of foreign exchange to get imports that people need to develop their territories, and I think that you should like hold up that potential explanation for why people use coins for so long and so widely alongside the other complementary explanation of why states were able to issue their own money and have them have value namely by requiring that they be returned as a tax payment as the only means to settle that that obligation Mm -hmm. so like those two ideas i think can live together basically theoretically
0: um, another possible reason that that gold was favored um at least early on because there were like tons of silver coins so it's not like gold was like super dominant or anything but uh early on uh gold can be found in like relatively pure forms in nature um but silver you have to actually like extract it so like mining technology had to c- catch up with um refining silver into a metal that could be coined. Yeah. Like the earliest. Actually, like. So the earliest like, precious metal coins were made of electrum, which is a gold silver alloy. Um, yeah, I was just going to
2: say that, actually.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so like the, the first ones were
2: alloys. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, that, well, that was like an innovation over um, solid silver coins or just bars of silver used for bulk payment of like a military or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, like. Alexander the Great's army, when it was in, like, Central Asia, it had to have this whole long um, supply chain of people simply to get the silver bars to pay the army. And it was, like, very costly in biophysical terms to do that. And so instead, they started issuing their own money in coin form as, like, a, a much biophysically cheaper way to get the resources it needs within wherever the army is. And so the Army would sort of uh the military rather would have sort of like a an ongoing provisional government sort of centered around wherever it happened to be on his conquest and be issuing this money and they're able to save a lot in real terms by doing that over simply having to cart all of your all the money that you needed to use from the homeland
0: that makes sense um I also remembered earlier uh, from uh, Debt by David Graeber, uh, he says another... Great book. Yeah, great book. Um, he says another reason that gold may have been favored was because uh, money evolved out of things that were used to adorn the human body. So jewelry, basically, um, which is why uh, there are also um, cowrie money and feather money and stuff like that uh which i am planning to do an episode on that uh because uh, again neoclassicals get it insanely wrong what's up andy
1: <laughs> it's a little known fact that the the penny loafers uh predated the penny <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah just to give like a, a the briefest explanation is like those aren't money in the sense of like you know you take your bag of cowrie shells to primitive walmart and um you know get your groceries there it's more like uh you are marrying someone and you need to compensate their family for the loss of their child so you give them a bunch of calories as like a symbolic payment yeah yeah
2: yeah like um uh, david graver's book "Dead first Five Thousand years was like my that was kind of like my gateway drug into chartalism same yep back in <laughs> i read it in like 2011 um, during school. And it like... He's kind of all over the place to an extent as a writer. But it's like... There's so many webs of like... Of... Like threads to follow on the history of of money. Like first as like a credit instrument. It was just like... It was a... Uh, there was hardly any circulating money very early on. five Six to five thousand years ago. And it was more uh, a credit or debt relations between people that they would mark up and down against each other and then sometimes satisfy in the form of a jubilee all at once where you just wipe out debt for a community and that was seen as normal. And so there would be debt jubilees where um, they would wipe the states, slates clean, literally. and Or if they didn't do a jubilee, then whoever had accumulated the most uh, debts drawn upon the rest of the community Relatively speaking Would just throw a big party <laughs> So he would use his credits Against other people To throw a big party And say like look at, look at what an awesome leader I am Because I can feed everyone in this feast And so like Anthropologists would find evidence Of these feasts happening
1: That is, uh, is These are much more um, Optimistic scenarios Than uh, what I've learned about uh, Some of ancient uh, prehistoric Greek society, where if uh, uh, there there weren't so many jubilees as uh, when a family kind of ran up their debts way too high, they uh generally sold their children into slavery.
2: That also happened. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it was a bit of a mixed bag. Yeah. yeah. So you have like, not all of them ended with a party. Early hunter gatherer societies would sometimes have this sort of like they call it the um, like the the person the person who's the leader is the person who can give the most to other people. The and big so man. So if you give gifts to people, yeah, the big man idea. Um, and if he's giving a lot, he's probably also going into debt at times to do that, because you need to go get the stuff that you're going to give to people from somewhere. And that was sort of seen as like some anthropologists say that's sort of like a proto-state. It's where he's like, he's sort of issuing IOUs like, oh, I owe you this gift later and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, yeah. So, like, this predates, like, the, the palace and the temple money, which are, were, could properly be termed states, uh, by, by anthropologists and political scientists. Like, Michael, uh, Michael Hudson, um, an economist at the UMKC, the University of Missouri, Kansas City has written a couple books that cover this process of, like, how did we get from the the big man idea to the first temples which issued their money and, like, how do they get people to receive th- – how do they get people to have faith in the money that they are issuing in the first place, which is oftentimes by, like, religious rites and, like, spiritual ceremonies and
0: less so than coercion
2: and stuff like that
0: i always wondered what eminem obama did for a living what sorry isn't his name michael hudson in real life i'm pretty sure it is yeah anyway i was i was thinking about like uh anthropologists studying our civilization and they're like talking about the same kind of thing like people who give a lot of gifts to everyone and throw big parties and they're like the uh the so-called big man or as they called it the baller uh, was you know <laughs> someone who <Dollar laughs> spent all their money at the club. <laughs>
2: it's a little like that, honestly. I guess I guess the
1: uh, um, big man theory is kind of the synthesis of uh, Eminem and Obama. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's true. Another thing that I was wondering about is with the idea, um. Uh, that I'll I'll get into more detail in a bit, but there's this idea that um, if money became overvalued, which is I, I don't like that term because money is a measure of value, so that's kind of a stupid way to put it. But basically, like if the mint price goes above the um, uh, the face value, then people will start trading by weight, which like I don't. I don't see how that could be practical at all. Like instead of trading with using coins by the face value, they supposedly trade by by the weight of silver in the coin, which would require everyone to have a scale everywhere that they trade.
1: And like exchange charts that give them up to the minute uh, uh, values of precious metals um, and where they
0: can buy and sell it. Yeah, and like different like precious metals have different like fineness levels, which I, I don't really understand. I probably should have read about that a little bit, but um like not all silver is equal.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's purity like issues and with the 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 silver coins that they issue and stuff. Yeah, well, so that the, seems like the whole will, point of issuing
0: coins is to like standardize the weight so that people don't have to have scales and figure out uh how density works you know years before that apocryphal story of what's his face getting in the pool
2: oh yeah yeah yeah. i mean temples like uh temples in mesopotamia would have scales that they used to measure the weight of of silver in the bars that they received from like other temples say like okay this looks about the same but is it really and okay you know, they would have an idea of what the market value of the silver content of the bar is. And then they would also have, of course, their own nominal amounts of receivability for their money and silver and stuff. And so they would judge, like, oh, this is overvalued or this is undervalued based on that. But there wasn't a lot of, like, uh, it, the scale thing was not really widespread outside of large institutions such as the states of the day, like temples and palaces.
0: Yeah, it seems like you would have to, like, have manufacturing with good tolerances in order to make, like, a good scale. Yeah,
2: you don't have, like, average people out there shaving off a little bit and then using it to melt down into other uh, silver bars or coins.
1: Yeah, this, like, a lot of the rational actor um, conclusions, like, they they draw upon this assumption that people have way more time on their hands than they actually do. (laughs)
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they're saying, like, well... (laughs) the spot value of, of, of silver has changed and like, he'll just see that and immediately stop being a farmer and go into this. Yeah. Like go, go into currency speculation.
1: Every human acts exactly like all of my asshole investor friends.
0: <laughs> just by wild it's coincidence, all all humans think exactly like me, a guy who's paid to uh, rationalize capitalism all day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So since we're on the subject, uh, I I posted screenshots from this uh, a couple days ago, and um, Ice Must Be Destroyed Guy and um, Sean from Seriously Wrong both went absolutely crazy over this. Um, So this is a a paper about debasement in France. It's called Commodity Money Inflation Theory and Evidence from France 1350 to 1436 um, by... For once, uh someone who's not one of the three sets of people that writes all the other stuff on uh debasement. Uh and so they create a neoclassical model of um you know, coinage uh and when it will supposedly be exchanged for bullion. Um so I just want to read this part from the model because it's very funny and very revealing of how neoclassicals think of this stuff. So, consider a small open economy in a discrete time framework. There is an aggregate consumption good in the economy. Each individual produces one unit of the consumption good during each period of time. We further assume that the individual cannot consume his own product, but only production of others. Famous characteristic of feudalism. (laughs) (laughs) Hence, each individual has to trade in order to consume. We further assume that trading takes place in small quantities, and thus each individual trades many times during a single period of time. We assume that there are two assets in the economy. Silver, in the form of bullion, and money, uh, coins. Both silver and the consumption good are assumed to be internationally tradable, and thus have a fixed relative price, which is assumed to be one. Silver can be traded over time as well. Lending and borrowing of silver is done in the world's capital market, at a world interest rate which is assumed to be fixed and equal to r the second asset is money which comes in the form of coins which contain silver money is non-traded internationally but is the only legal tender within the economy the price of silver and of the physical uh, good in terms of money is pt there is a continuum of size one of consumers with infinite life horizons <laughs> all consumers are immortal in other words <laughs> They derive utility from consumption and from money holdings, since they need this money oh, yeah, to yeah. carry out their many transactions during the period. This model, therefore, follows the tradition of money in the utility function, which began with Sydrowski, 1967, and has recently been adapted to an open economy in, uh, in Opsfeld and Rogoff, 1996, Chapter 8. For the sake of simplicity, some, uh, consumers are assumed to be risk-neutral. Utility of individuals in time O is... And they have this big, stupid equation. Sum yeah, of 1 yeah. plus rho, blah, blah, blah. What's so, uh,
1: as far as I see it, everything that you just read, um, what happened there is uh, they started with this equation uh, or some form of it, and then kind of worked backwards from there because it seems like every single definition there is made to fit within this neat little uh, summation equation. Yeah. um. That they can just you know throw on their thing to make the math easy. Yeah, have have a nice little curve on their on their paper, um, and uh, you know if it works out, they can get it named after them. But right. <laughs> that's, <laughs> I, I think, that, yeah, they were more concerned with making something that could be an easy equation than uh, really anything else.
0: Yeah, I think the way that economists usually uh do their work is uh unlike most sciences where they like observe something a bunch of times and then they're like how can we explain this thing that we observe let's write an equation that matches the data uh economists yeah. are like let's write an equation and make sure the data matches it
2: yeah and if it doesn't that's like we the, just have to add to the equation <laughs> the fu- that's been like the fundamental disjoint between Neoclassical and heterodox economic theory for over a hundred years. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Is that one group is, one group is doing science and the other group is not doing science. Right. So, like, I mean, normally, normally you go out and then observe and ask people what they're already doing. And then you go home and you think about it for a while and write an equation, even a messy one, that roughly fits what you saw. Right. It's not like you think up an equation that looks nice. And then you talk to people and that doesn't quite fit and you just, you make up, you say this is a market failure, this other stuff. That's that like the craziest thing
0: about economics is it's the one study, well, one of the studies where you're trying to explain the behavior of like all of these organizations of people. Um, and, you know, w- with like physics or chemistry, uh, you can't ask chemicals or objects what they're doing and why. But you can literally go up to a businessman and be like, hey, what are you doing and why? Yes. <laughs> and they'll explain it to you.
2: <laughs> but they yeah, never do that. You know, so. um, That's funny you should say that because actually every now and then, every now and then an, like a neoclassical economist will like mess up and do real science. <laughs> and so they'll do a survey on like, hey how do people set prices yeah and then they I, go and about find this. a result <laughs> means and burl
0: you're talking yeah, about yeah
2: <laughs> yeah yeah and like um so they'll find contradictory results that refute part of their theory and so they can't really talk about it that that loudly it might get published in a few of the somewhat lesser known mainstream art, uh, journals but for the most part they have to keep it to themselves you know there's heterodox yeah, if you
0: ever try to talk to this Uh, talk about this with people who have studied uh, econ. They usually uh, just call you an idiot and get really mad and say that you're lying.
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's kind of the default. But there's there's starting to be more heterodox economists who are doing the survey thing. And, I mean, surveys are expensive. That's why it doesn't get done very much, period. But neoclassicals, who are the ones who have money, sometimes do big surveys, and they're like, wait a minute. You're saying... That you use the total cost and then add a markup, and then and that's how you do your prices. That's not how it's supposed to work. It's Another good to- one
0: is um. So I forget who it was, but someone was testing like the rational actor theory, and so they were like, um, "All right, we have a list of products, and we want you to uh, order them in the you know the order of your preference." And uh, to their complete surprise, people were like, ah, "I don't know. I guess this one and this one." And then the next time they're like, uh, I guess that one and this one. So they like changed their order up and like didn't have like a firm set of completely ordered preferences. So if they went to the store and they were like, hmm, I don't know if I want, you know, uh, Campbell's soup or chunky soup. They would just pick one at random. Uh, but that kind of breaks all <laughs> neoclassical mm-hmm. economic models. All right, so right. I'm, I'm going to skip ahead in the model part a little bit, but there's some like really ridiculous stuff uh later on so uh we next lay out the informational and timing assumptions of the model each period opens up with an announcement of a debasement or a stabilization then mints operate at the beginning of the period while trade in goods which requires money takes place only late only later Uh, we assume that all coins look alike for ordinary folks and cannot be distinguished without the help of experts who are called money changers such help is costly to simplify things, we assume the following cost structure: in each period, an individual can obtain one evaluation of his coins for free, but additional evaluations are infinitely costly. <laughs> As a result, an individual evaluates coins only once each period.
1: I love when uh, when economists talk about infinity. <laughs>
0: As assumed above, many transactions take place during a single period, and coins circulate many times, so that individuals cannot keep track of the coin composition of their money. Hence, the optimal strategy is to check their coins at the beginning of the period, to decide which coins to re-mint, which coins to turn into silver, and which coins to keep in circulation. (laughs) During the period when goods are continuously traded, the set of coins changes and the initial information is lost, since all coins look alike. Hence, due to the law of large numbers, by the end of each period, the composition of coins held by each individual is the same as the economy-wide composition.
1: You know, some people speculate that uh, because the coins are indistinguishable, they're all one single coin uh, (laughs) switching places uh, uh,
2: too fast to be perceived by humans.
0: (laughs) There is a single aggregate coin in the economy.
2: (laughs) I've never seen two of the coins at the same time, so you can't be sure. Yeah,
0: that's true.
1: Is, was this written by like a highly um, like a high level economist or was this just like some grad students trying to shit out a paper? Because I
0: think it was written by a high level something.
1: OK, so it was um, a high level economist trying to shit out a paper. It so sounds like a high level economist.
0: I don't know if they're an economist, but they're they, they are. They're operating on a high level. That's for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. I like
2: how they I, I like how they have like everyone has their own mint. Y- yeah. <laughs> everyone have, can like, remit remint the coin
0: and uh turn it into bullion. Yeah. The
2: consumer I mean, they, ha- so they have all that stuff, but they d- that they aren't experts enough to determine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> they have all of like the accoutrement of an entire mint, but they don't have any expertise.
0: <laughs> um so here's another incredibly realistic part. The government imposes no taxes and finances its activity by seniorage only. I don't even know if I want to read the rest of it because I think that's enough <laughs> out of that paragraph.
1: Oh, uh, wait. Well, uh, the, the last sentence, I don't know um, uh, if it's uh, of that paragraph. Um, let the listeners decide uh, whether it's important. In other words, uh, reduces the mint price Q... And fixes it at the lower level thereafter. Um so maybe look into that mint price.
0: <laughs> um oh yeah, of course. And they they further assume that all markets are perfectly competitive and that expectations are rational, which means there are infinite buyers and sellers. Naturally. Yes. <laughs>
2: There's no institutions of any kind. <laughs> right. <laughs> Everyone has the same amount of power. Uh they have nice orderly preference sets that stuff
0: yep exactly
1: i imagine this author like walking into a medieval village and like just walking up to a peasant and explaining it and showing them the equation and the peasant being like "Mm, yeah that makes sense that's (laughs) that is a lot like what our life is like
2: (laughs) (laughs) i like to picture like the if you if an economist really did believe these these like simplistic theories then if they were not an economist and living in the times were operating as a as a peasant or something they would just have no friends
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> like no one well they would go around like trying to minimize all their costs because they say that's part of how price is discovered and they would like if you run a business then your costs are someone else's price And so if you just suddenly try to offer your suppliers nothing, then they won't want to do business with you.
0: Exactly. Um, So in their conclusion section, uh, they have some other really insane stuff. Um, And I think this points to how, even if they are looking at evidence, their interpretation of the evidence is just so bad that it can't be trusted. Uh, so they say, in this paper, we show how inflation and even high inflation happen under a commodity money regime. The possibility of high inflation due to debasements is shown in theory and then demonstrated by 100 years of frequent debasements in medieval France. Um, which is fine. But they say, under commodity money, the demand for money falls less at high rates of inflation. So they're saying that demand for money... When inflation happens i.e. prices go up uh ca- that causes demand to fall so if you have to pay more for stuff then you will demand less money does that make wait, sense wait, to anyone wait, what, <laughs> oh the demand <laughs> what, what for the money the... he's saying the demand for the money falls
1: and not the demand yes for... the demand for money falls if Good. prices
0: increase <laughs> okay <laughs> what what year what was the year range for this study uh thirteen fifty to fourteen thirty six
2: so during the hundred years war when France was suffering like massive uh losses of biophysical capacity to produce things
0: yes, but it wasn't because of that that uh yeah was we'll just
2: that's like that's called history that's not what we're talking about right yeah that's not economics yeah that has no bearing on the economy. <laughs> so i'm guessing
1: somewhere in this paper they have hard data uh from the time that they map to their projection from that equation so that um there's a certain level of credibility for that equation am i am i correct in assuming that
0: uh well yeah sort of like data um, points
1: with a margin of error uh, mapped against their predictions based on their equation
0: they don't have so much data points as uh, rates of data points. So for some reason, uh, they use the cumulative debasement rate uh, as their main type of data. Uh, so they have these charts at the, at the end, like starting on page 43, uh, where they measure the cumulative debasement rate of the livre. Which I have no trying, I earthly mean, idea why they would use that. But the
2: like their bas- their claim, what they want to claim is that the debasement causes inflation, right? Yes. Okay. And not the war that was going on. Correct. <laughs> okay. So yeah, because
0: and, and of course that inflation causes demand for money to fall. People want less money when the prices are higher
1: oh this is a yeah, exactly this is a john f kennedy school of government at harvard university paper
0: yes yeah these
2: are people these are people with ivy league degrees uh telling us this is how it was
0: the sheer brilliance of the ivy leagues yes
2: uh they worked pi into one
1: of their equations uh, <laughs> i did not uh, notice that it? it's very funny <laughs> Oh wait, that's it's not the number pi. They just say in the section we consider the case of repeated debasements at a fixed rate pi and then they just use the number i probably to make themselves Oh, you know what? We assume pi yeah, to be
0: 3.1415, etc. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that's like if if you guys have taken an econ course, they they'll just drop pi as a variable.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, that's what they do here, which, which is clearly it really annoys me it's 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 physics envy they like say profit or pi
0: i honestly get annoyed by like math equations in general like so i'm a programmer so when i write out equations i just use words because then if i look at it later like you know a month later i can be like oh i know what i was writing there instead of like having to figure out what i signed each thing to yeah but I uh, i guess no one else does that I don't
1: know. I like I like equations, but that's just because I'm kind of a messy bitch. Um <laughs> But I, I I do agree with you in principle. Yeah, words are easier. I just uh I always got a little thrill out of like trying to figure out what, what an equation means. Uh, which is why I went in I did physics in college, so
2: Oh yeah, they do have charts. Look at that. I just like that when whenever like Francis is like in the cool zone basically and they just ignore that. <laughs>
0: Uh, so, there was another study that I read that is much more normal uh, about uh, debasement in France, although it only covers seven years. I think it's also during a war in France. I'm not as good at history, so it's 15, 1415 to 1422. Oh, during the Hundred oh, Years' yeah. War. Okay. Yep. Yeah, still. And they, they find uh, something much more plausible, which is that debasement is just uh, how public finance happened during oh, that time. <laughs> so if you needed to finance a war, you would just uh, reduce the content of silver in your coins so that you could make more of them. I guess in I, principle, I, don't know I would say, I like,
2: if, if what they're... I don't know what this if this is what they're saying, but, I mean, if the state were shaving mm-hmm. off part of... The gold and silver content and then using that to buy war materials like from abroad i guess that would make some sense there but that's not really what they're saying it sounds like
0: yeah i think what they're saying they're is saying, just that they can mint more coins yeah that yeah the, and pay they're more saying people with
2: like the, the senior age is how they're is how they're paying for it
0: yep and uh, in case anyone listening doesn't know, Seniorage is uh, the difference between like the cost of minting the coin and the face value of the coins. They also look at like the inflation that happens with debasement, and they say that inflation does happen because of debasement, but the only thing they're looking at is the price of silver. So like inflation today is usually measured as CPI, which is a uh, like an index of different uh products uh that are weighted according to their supposed relative importance to each other. And then they're step. aggregated into like a percentage that changes over time. So they like set a fi- like a certain year to be like the base of the index. So I think it's usually 2014 now. And uh, they have like a dimensionless number, essentially. Uh, But these guys are just looking at silver. So I think if you debase a coin, then silver's price going up makes sense. Um, But I think that they are drawing the conclusion from that because they're neoclassicals that uh, inflation is when the value of money goes down. And so that means that all prices go up at the same time because of efficient markets and that bullshit.
2: Yeah. And the quantity theory of money.
0: Yeah. So I mentioned that I looked at a bunch of data from Spariga Reichsbank, uh, which is the National Bank of Sweden. They put together a data set over around 800 years it's, uh, the, from the 1200s to today of different Swedish prices um and part of that history includes like parts of finland but uh you know i don't think that's gonna mess up my conclusion uh uh and so i basically like uh both looked at charts and did like correlations of prices versus silver content of coins does their
1: basket of goods include um the cost of importing grad students for your ritual sacrifice (laughs)
0: <laughs> no and it also does not include any type of stinky fish i don't know why um there's no smelly uh, rotty well, f- rotting well they were lute-
2: they were they were autarkic they could create it wholly within their territory <laughs> so there's minimal cost
0: universal basic ludifisc. is what you're yeah, saying yeah, huh? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, I checked like the correlation of uh, like commodity prices to the silver content of the coins that they were priced in, and there is like some correlation. Uh, so I, I basically broke it down. I don't know where the fuck this data is. Oh here it is. Uh, so my the main query that I was looking at, I broke it down into if there's more than a negative negative fifty percent correlation, which meant that. Debasement would be strongly uh, correlated with prices increasing, i.e. inflation, um, and uh, no or weak correlation. So under 50% correlation or, um, yeah, uh, between negative and positive 50% correlation and positive correlation. So there was no positive correlation. um, So debasement never caused prices to go down. Um, But only a minority of the time did it cause prices to go up um the average correlation of all those data points is negative 28 um the number of times it's strongly negatively correlated is 23 out of 101 so about 23 percent of the time and most of the time it, it has either no or weak correlation um so based off that like kind of vulgar analysis uh i don't think there's very strong evidence that debasement causes all prices to go up, uh, which I think kind of makes sense. Because if you're trading at the face value of stuff, um, you're not going to do a bunch of extra work to like figure out how the weight of the precious metal of the coin has changed and how to adjust your prices based on that. Um, and just because a coin is debased doesn't mean that like everyone has more of them. Which I think yeah. is something that's in MMT pretty prominently, which is just because the government issues money doesn't mean that everyone gets it. Only certain people get it, and it's who you give it to that affects what it does. Right. I should say that, um, like
2: debasement certainly did happen. That's a real historical fact, mm-hmm. but it was it was done for. Uh, Historians think for other reasons, such as getting enough bullion to get imports for things that you need that you can't make mm-hmm. like as for or to financing be used wars. As foreign exchange yeah, to finance wars, certainly, so they would maybe shave off coins of a bit or alloy them so that you can keep more of the bullion to pay allies to get war war materials
1: oh, so it would be a process of the coins would be remixed, but uh, the idea was to remove um, the gold itself from the coin, uh, have the same amount of coins in circulation, just with less gold, and then use that gold for foreign uh, trading.
2: Right. Okay. That's an important point. That like when they de- like most debasements didn't result in higher circulation, higher coins in circulation. Hmm. There's just okay. this assumption that it ha- that it always happens because of the economic theory of neoclassicals. Right. It says if like right. if you're debasing that automatically means there's more of them. But the, the the replacement value of goods being transacted upon by all these more coins is still the same. So they're saying like therefore the debasement also cheapened the
0: value of the money, mm-hmm.
2: leading to inflation.
0: Right. Andy, I thought when you said the coins were remixed you were gonna make a DJ joke or something. <laughs> <laughs> um oh one thing i didn't bring up is uh the most famous historical instance of debasement which is called the great debasement um and it's when henry the 8th the famous womanizing nasty pig king of england uh debased the english currency throughout his reign and uh also the next uh like 10 year old king also did that uh during part of their reign Uh, in order to finance a lavish lifestyle and wars with france and scotland um the shilling under henry uh, became a silver-plated copper coin and the silver was thin enough that it tended to rub off which uh, led to him being nicknamed old copper nose kind of funny um and of course uh the people that write about this say the economic effects lasted until uh the coins were replaced with good coins but then they don't list what those effects are or what the evidence of them is or how they know that (laughs) or any of that shit (laughs) they're just like yep they were effects (laughs) therefore
2: they're causative
0: yeah (laughs) it's
1: we can we can extrapolate from the data that coin to coin debasement leads to protestantism (laughs) yes (laughs)
0: that's something i want to test now now that i have a data set i think i can explicitly test for it
2: (laughs) coin debasement caused the church of england
0: yes exactly exactly.
2: yeah so this is uh
1: pretty cool just uh (laughs) You know on, I, I on guess one thing... we're known for our ability to riff on the fly.
0: <laughs> uh I guess one thing we didn't actually talk about was uh th- this definition of commodity money, which is uh what everyone writing about this calls uh you know, metal coin money. Um so they define it as money whose value is given by the intrinsic value of the thing that it's made of. Um And we, I mean, we talked about this a bit, um, but like they're using this to differentiate it from fiat money, uh, which is money that's given value by government decree. Uh, But I kind of think that, I don't know, it doesn't seem like it really fits because as you were saying, um, if you're going to melt your coins down into bullion, the reason that you do that is to trade with uh, another state. And so, the like intrinsic value of it is like w- given by, you know, the value of that metal in their coin, yeah. like in their money. I mean, it's
2: the you melt it down, and you know, it's in this unalloyed form, uh, no longer in your coin, so it has no mo- It does. It no longer has a nominal face value of your coinage but you can price it in someone else's nominal value and sell it to them and then they'll give you i don't know like mercenaries or something
0: and and so the reason they define it this way is again to like fit it to their theory which is that you know we used to swap cows for chickens and then a smart guy thought oh that this is too hard to do the double coincidence of wants etc we need to have coins instead and so uh you know because gold is inherently valuable uh they decided to use gold and now uh we use credit cards the end <laughs> um i imagine being the guy
2: seven thousand years ago who's just you're trade you're trading chickens for cows and you just throw your throw your shit down you're just like this sucks don't you agree? <laughs> like Then you just devise the entire international monetary system there. Also, the idea of, like, you know, uh,
1: the regular people who would use coins having another use for gold. Like, well, I could, you know, right. I, I could buy some grain or I could decorate my death mask.
0: <laughs> There's... Yeah. I could, uh, well, I could get some grain or I could make a CPU. Yeah. <laughs> Great.
2: You, well, you could pay someone else to make the death mask. So that contributes to the value of gold and why it might be a good idea to have some of it on hand.
0: Yeah, but the problem but is he only like wants to be paid thing. in death masks.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or you could have uh, death mask is a type of derivative of the gold value, I guess. You just gotta get away from this idea of there being, like, this, like, fetishistic intrinsic value yeah. of metals. Egypt fell to
1: Rome because of uh, collateralized death mask obligations. The bubble <laughs> just blew up, and then and Caesar came yeah. strolling in.
0: It's because they didn't have that. So like, the gold. The, the... Yeah.
2: Sorry, the, the gold like the gold content of the death mask could be melted down and then you can price it in someone else's money. That's certainly true.
0: Someone else's death mask? Else's death mask. Yeah. Um, so to go back to the questions that I asked initially, I guess, uh, what happens when a coin is debased? Uh, I think we've found the answer to that. Sometimes prices go up, uh, but most of the time they don't. The price of the precious metal goes up which makes sense because that's what the mint takes for coins so if they left it the same then uh, they would lose a bunch of money I guess Uh, what happens to coins when a coin is debased? Uh, Sometimes they consider consider, uh, sometimes they continue circulating and sometimes the debased money replaces the old money Uh, so that paper that I talked about uh, with Gresham's Law, they have a bunch of examples in there where, you know, sometimes the old money stays around. And we explained why, I think, pretty well. Um, when a new money is issued, is it usually a larger, or smaller, or same fraction of the average price? Uh, usually, it's the same fraction. Um, they just replace the coin with a very similar coin with less metal in it. And uh, sadly... Uh, you can only evaluate it once and then after that it costs infinity money.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just like life. Just like in in the real world. John F. Kennedy yeah. School of Government <laughs> <laughs> put their best minds on this.
0: Uh, I think that's all I have for this.
1: I'm going to look up this uh, author, Joseph uh Zyra.
0: I, I could talk about the different types of coins because I think uh since we just use dollars, we assume that all monies are like used for everything um, but back then they had different coins, different monies for different things, so they had like accounting money, uh numeric money, and effective money um, and you know, as with any ontology. That doesn't really fit reality, there's sometimes even more complex stuff. Um like in uh during the Qing dynasty, there were cash coins, which were a petty currency. Uh these are the coins that you've seen where they have the square hole in them. They're like brass with a square hole, and uh they can be put onto strings uh to make like larger denominations. And uh, I wrote here. I, I hate it when you go to a Chinese restaurant and you forgot it was cash only, so you have to go across the street to an ATM to get uh, big strings of coins to pay for the food. Um, they also they had like uh coins specifically for taxation, uh, coins specifically for maritime trade, and f- specifically for market trade. So there's all sorts of systems with all kinds of crazy shit that goes beyond like any kind of uh classification that you could think up in your little study for harvard university
2: yeah i mean at times in parts of china ancient china they're using knives as money
0: nice (laughs) yeah assuming
2: knife money for a while
1: assuming uh with this maritime trade we have infinite ocean uh with uh infinitesimal uh Transactions occurring over uh, um, uh, discrete time periods. Let that be pi.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's always over. It's never over continuous time, like in real life.
0: Yeah, discrete time. Yeah, yeah. since you, yeah. uh, yeah. I, I did kind of skip <laughs> over that.
2: <laughs> life is not a series of discrete events, really. So,
1: <laughs> you see, the the coins operate in both a particle and a wave-like.
2: Uh. Manner. These are all simplifying assumptions. The general thrust is still true. Blah blah blah. <laughs> they all um, well, they'll always say uh, that the the toy models are still useful as like a teaching device. And I'm like, okay, but it's not. I love
0: teaching someone completely it the wrong thing. True. So that when you teach them the correct thing based on hi- historical evidence, they get mad at you and call you a dumbass. Until you to take yeah. Econ 101. Yeah. Just the idea of
1: like, yeah, it's a teaching device. We teach you the wrong thing. Yeah. And that's, yeah.
2: So you,
0: like, that's how you <laughs> learn. How you learn.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just like in physics. Yeah.
0: You, you're forced to take, uh, you know, an introductory class uh, as part of your degree. And then uh, you never come back to the advanced classes where you learn the correct thing. Uh, which is what you're supposed to do. And uh that makes you an expert in economics. Uh-huh. Speaking of, uh, yeah, I mean, like, in physics class, you'll use, like,
2: the ideal gas law or whatever. Or in chemistry, I guess. And that's somewhat of a simplification, but they still use it because it works in terms of building more complex theories about the interaction of particles. Yeah. Because it still has some validity in the real world. It's and, um, inc- incidentally, um, the quantity theory of money has the same functional form as the ideal gas law. <laughs> and, like, some people think that it was like, uh, a mainstream economist's attempt to look more mathy. So they just grafted on, uh, some of, like, the really in vogue chemistry research that was going on onto their theories.
1: Yeah. I mean, to take the, the physics analogy, uh, uh, probably further than anyone, uh, wants or thinks it should go. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's more along the lines of like string theory where, uh, you know, they, they want to have like a nice model describing everything, but there's no way to confirm it. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it, it, it it makes them look good because they can point at their equations and, and show how nice everything is. But um, even if you try to confirm it or try to ask them how to confirm it, they'll tell you that, that you're wrong and that's not the point.
2: Yeah, well, what they'll usually say is this is an idealized model of what it would like under perfectly competitive conditions. But we don't have that. We have like messy externalities instead. So, like, if society was like the model, then it would look like the model. (laughs) (laughs) So,
0: it's an ideal that we try to shoot for, but we don't get there. Reading a paper by Bonois Clapeyron, uh, we developed a model of gases, and we have tested it with the empirical data. It doesn't seem to fit, uh, but we think that the problem is uh, our limitations of observation, and and the model actually works fine uh, under equilibrium conditions right yeah just a little ideal gas law joke didn't land I guess <laughs> <laughs> I knew of the law but I didn't
2: also I I didn't really do that well in chemistry so
0: <laughs> yeah I didn't either
2: I thought it was a little bloated um
1: sorry I made it worse <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I don't have anything else for this um do you want to plug your show and anything else that you're working on
1: uh sure yeah listen to grubstakers the podcast about billionaires where we uh profile a, a new billionaire and uh, their deeds and misdeeds two of them a week with the patreon and um, uh, right now we're just finding out that everyone every supply chain goes back to child slavery that's what we've been discovering over the last year uh and um yeah we just did a three-parter on Deutsche Bank.
2: We also, we just released an episode on offshore money and we get into some, some stuff that's kind of related to what we talked about today, actually. Okay. With uh, like imports and Forex and stuff. So that's on SoundCloud. Grubstakers.
0: Awesome. Uh, Andy, Stephen, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks. The next episode we are going to be doing i am going to talk about the emergence of money uh in more detail Uh, so that should be interesting stay tuned for that hopefully i will uh get it out in under a month this time (laughs) all right thanks a lot everyone